0: Thanks for clicking on Behind the Buzz, a public fit theater company's bi-weekly podcast examining the myriad details that made up the production of some of our most popular past shows. I'm Joe Kukin, producing director here at APF, joined by Artistic Director Anne-Marie Pereff. Hi there! Hello! And together we'll be talking about the work that went into bringing these plays to life. This is episode seven, the final episode of this, our inaugural season, and today We'll be extending the conversation about our 2019 production of Small Mouth Sounds. We're thrilled to be joined today by Brad Heberly, an actor from the original New York production of the play, and by the show's playwright, Bess Wall. So let me get the official introductions out of the way, because I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Brad Heberly is a Las Vegas native, and Anne-Marie's oldest, closest, and, and dearest He received his BA in theater from UC Santa Barbara and did his MFA studies at Yale School of Drama. In fact, it was at Yale where he met Bess Wall. A native of Brooklyn, Bess Wall majored in English at Harvard College. While studying acting at the Yale School of Drama, Bess created the play Cats Talk Back which went on to the New York International Fringe Festival, eventually winning the award for Best Overall Production, and led to her starting off point as a playwright. Small Mouth Sounds premiered Off-Broadway at Ars Nova in 2015 to huge critical acclaim. The play was revamped in 2016 at the Off-Broadway venue Signature Theater and had a U.S. national tour in 2017. That very year, Wall won the Outer Critics Circle John Gassner Award, presented for an American play, preferably by, by a new playwright, for Small Mouth Sound. Other plays include Pretty Filthy, Barcelona, In, Make Believe, and she recently made her Broadway debut in 2019 with the play Red Horizons, for which she has recently received a Tony nomination. Hey guys, thanks for joining us! Did we get that right? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, so I get mean, was that, right? was that accurate?
1: <laughs> so did we mess yeah, up? It doesn't Pretty? matter.
2: It's fine. <laughs> Do you consider- I mean, I might, I might have received a BFA, not
0: a BA, but
1: that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. Well, I'm glad we clarified that.
0: I'm glad we got this. Do you consider yourself Emery's oldest and dearest friend? Sure, yeah. Why not? Well, that's one I,
2: I, I think, think I think that's actually... Factual, because I think we met when maybe we were four years old or five years old. Or something.
1: Yes, I have a huge memory of that. Yeah. Um, so, yes, my first memory of Brad, uh, his hair was a little redder when he was younger and he popped his head over the fence and he said, hi, I'm Brad. Do you want to play on my swing set? And I was like, sure. And so that's how uh, our friendship started. And I was in a private like. I was going to a Montessori school and because I wanted to be with Brad so much, I begged my mother to um, put me in public school so that we could be in the second grade together.
0: Well, it, it's funny, Brad, you've said that sort of your childhood friendship with Emery is sort of similar to your adult friendship with with Bess. How did that come about?
3: Uh, <laughs> i'm flattered i'm very flattered i know i'm feeling like um, I, i'll fight you for brad and marie we'll
1: <laughs> oh no no can we share <laughs>
0: I, you know the truth is i think you could take her best i think you could she's
1: he's not like a wishbone you know like you, you, do i get the bigger piece or you know like <laughs> oh, I'll share. Well, we'll there,
0: share him. there may not be there may not have been a fence involved but do you remember meeting brad at yale Yes,
3: um, I remember because I met Brad before Yale started. Oh. Because Brad and I were at the same audition session for the acting uh, class at Yale, and uh, it was—I knew right then that I was in love with him. And um, we sang. <laughs> we we had to do our monologues for. Did we do our mon- We did our monologues for each other because I remember we, your monologue. Yeah,
2: we were in a, we were in a, like a, bit, a little small callback together at the end of this day. And we had to work on, be prepared to work on one of our pieces. And so we we were working in front of each other. But go ahead.
3: Yeah. and And then we had to sing a song. And I'm not a singer at all. And I, I sang like a James Taylor song or a Cat Stevens song or something. Yeah, all right. and like, I remember.
2: All, all, like all five verses of it. <laughs> <laughs> and,
3: and I sat back down next to Brad, who I didn't know at all and had never had a conversation with. And I just remember he just like patted me on the knee like, that's Okay. <laughs> That's okay, you can't
2: say. I have no recollection of that.
3: That didn't go well, but it's gonna be okay.
2: (laughs) I was probably like encouraging you. I was like, we're all in this together. They used to call me Rain (laughs) they used to call me rainbow oh. bright
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> rainbow bright well it probably helped you probably and I'm, I'm making some assumptions probably weren't up for the same role during this audition process
3: no well we were just trying to get into the acting company of the school so yeah we were just all like in it together but I don't think anyone else you know like to, to admit you know first year students into the school they had these little sessions where everyone would come and do their monologues and um, you know we didn't know that either of us would get in and then we didn't talk again until the first day. Right. It was like, Oh yeah, I, yeah. I remember you, we were in a callback together and you patted me after I sang. Bess,
0: was, you know, this before, I heard- <laughs> was this before you had started, uh, was this before you had started writing?
3: Yeah, it was. It was before I started writing. I was, um, I was really like I had an inkling that I might want to write at some point, but I didn't really think of myself that way. And then uh, it wasn't until my second year in grad school that I started um, writing little plays, including Cats Talk Back, which um, Brad stole the show of that as with many of my other plays. Yeah, um, Emery saw
0: today. that, actually. Emily I was do. I, serotit- I, for, serendipitously in town.
1: I remember, I don't know why I was in New York City. I don't think I was living there yet, but uh, I did see it, and I remember enjoying it thoroughly. And, yes, Brad did steal the show, and I remember him doing a stag jump. Yeah. On the show. <laughs> yeah, I was and like, a- oh, there's the dancer, Brad. Yeah. I, yeah. Th- that's the part I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And a high kick, some high kicks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it
3: was pretty can, great.
0: Can you still do them, Brad? We're on video. I mean, this it won't go over the podcast, no. but can you do one now for us? I, I can kick all the way to my waist.
2: I, 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 have, a, I have a good, like, 40-degree kick. That's about it.
0: <laughs> well, this is, you know, it, it's these relationships. I wanted to bring up the relationships first because I have uh, – I've, I've heard stories from, um, you know, in and around, mostly from Brad probably, that some of the work that you've been uh, – some of your writing best actually incorporates some of brad's life and probably your own and maybe in some peripheral ways kind of Anne Marie's. is that not fair brad you're shaking your head like i've just told the worst secret ever i mean
2: i think i know where you're going with this I, I mean i would already preemptively say like i i, I anyway uh, like, it's like i think like Writers, you know, you, uh, in, any artist taking inspiration from the world around
0: you. So well, know, well, maybe <laughs> maybe you're not as so aware. What do you am I on the wrong track here? Best is that inappropriate?
3: No, no. I mean, I would definitely say like there's a very small handful of people like Three And Brad is one of them who are who artistically inspire me on a consistent basis over like years and years and years. And Brad. So I I feel like Brad and I, we came up together through acting school. We became like super close friends. And Brad's like has inspired me both like just to him as a person, but also like his taste, his aesthetic, his idea of what's what's interesting on stage and what's not like all of that is uh, incredibly inspiring to me. So um, I'm always like stealing from Brad in different ways. And I often I've written a few plays since then with parts for him. You know, he was in obviously that first play that we did in grad school, but then he was in small mouth sounds and then he was in another play of mine, make believe. And then Uh, My Broadway play had like certain elements of Brad uh, on stage and in one of the characters. So uh, yeah, he's, he's inspired me to the point where like, now, if I write a play without a role for Brad in it, I'm a little depressed <laughs> that Brad's not going to be in it. No,
0: truly. No, I I understand. I I understand. I really appreciate that answer because now you've saved me from having to ask the question of where do your ideas come from, which is such a an Just overused Brad. trope. You always yes. have that. <laughs> come from
3: Brad. Just Brad. Just Brad. <laughs>
0: that's it <laughs> I, 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 I love that idea where, where did the handle can i I just want to ask this it, it and this may not have anything to do with brad sorry brad we might not talk about you for just a couple seconds um I, i've heard your plays described your work sort of in, in in toto described as as impossible plays is that a where did that term come from is that a term you embrace
3: yeah um I guess I do embrace it. I mean, I I think it comes from the fact that I'm often interested in trying to put stuff on stage that I haven't seen before or that seems really difficult or challenging. You know, like I'm interested in what I can do that seems like a terrible idea that will never work um, and then seeing if I can rise to that challenge. So um, definitely there's something in that sort of idea of what what's impossible on stage is really interesting to me um can, and i think that's part of where Small smallmouth sounds came from
0: can you list some of the, i just uh, that's just a fascinating idea to me the idea of having a list of things that seem to be impossible on stage and and having seen miss saigon where they landed a helicopter you know i, I does that make the list where what, what what's what is the yeah. graduated list of things that that fascinate you in terms of potentially being impossible on stage
3: Right. Well, definitely with small mouth sounds, I was trying to push the envelope of how much silence could I put on stage until still tell a story that people could follow, um, especially since people talk about theater as being so dialogue driven. And I was interested in the ways in which it's not dialogue driven. It's it's like behavior driven and emotion driven. And, and how else could we tell a story? Um, with uh, Make Believe, another play that Brad was in, <laughs> um, I was interested in putting children on stage and seeing how much of a story changed. Children could, you know, could tell... Um, and then, um, with grand horizons, uh, I did crash a truck through a wall on stage. So there was a little Miss Saigon in there, but I was also interested in, See, I, I felt more Sam Shepard
0: than Miss Saigon. I felt like it was the fool for love moment in, in, yeah, uh, yeah the, the car, the truck moment in fool for love than, than totally. Miss Saigon.
3: <laughs> totally, totally. No, I, I, was, so I was trying to like push, push the envelope in terms of design. But with that, I was also interested in doing like a, a true sort of. Comedy that that uh, felt like a throwback in a way, and was sort of um, something that wasn't like the fashion right now. And seeing it, you know, what it meant to just like fly in the face of sort of the the theatrical conventions of right now by putting like a big fun comedy on stage in a way that not not a lot of people are doing. So that was another that was another like mm-hmm. challenge that was interesting to me for that one. Um, so yeah, I'm always. I'm always trying to do it and and I don't like set out to think like, what's a really hard thing to do. I just end up being attracted to things that seem, um, that seem difficult. I don't know why, but honestly, I think all of theater is really difficult. Like I think every play is kind of impossible. So Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm really doing anything that different than what we're all doing when we make a play. It's like always kind of a magic trick if you pull it off. So, um, you know, I, I feel like, um, you know, I'm just like part of, part of what everyone's doing, which is trying to make People believe in things that
0: aren't real. Specifically, they're talking about small mouse sounds. Getting back to to the play that we have a, a bit of a hands on experience with, and Marie had some trepidation. I guess is the best word as we started the yeah. rehearsal process for that. You were you were anxious.
1: Yeah, uh, I had friends who had approached me uh, previously about what I was going to put in the season, and I would I had gone to see the signature production. And I loved it. And I wanted to know if it was like an inside joke. It was if it was an ensemble piece that Brad was part of. And was it replicable? And I thought, well, no, this seems replicable. I read the play. But then I decided not to put it in the season because it scared the shit out of me. When,
0: well, specifically <laughs> what? What scared you?
1: Uh, well, the the silence and crafting the silence and not have like bad actor indicating where there's like all of these gestures on stage that are not believable. Uh, that was a thing that was troubling to me. I didn't know if Las Vegas audiences would, I, would be interested in such a thing, that was a concern of mine. Uh, but I, there were two people in the theater community who were very attracted to the play and out in the backyard around, um, around a fire, they convinced me and so I took the plunge. So
0: <laughs> is that a concern Do you, do you see elements of this play that 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 uh mm-hmm. run the risk of stumbling into pantomime or or indication or or what have you Brad you're nodding your head Are you being more intimately involved maybe <laughs> that's a question for you
2: <laughs> well no i mean i i think 100% i mean that is a that is a tricky thing to navigate uh you know being inside of the play as an actor and of course you know the director's there to orchestrate that and give you feedback but Yeah. You kind of question um, what is, you know, you have to trust that your thought process and what you're, what you're trying to achieve is being read. And that is enough. When you get to the part where I I should be showing this more, you know, that's when you get into trouble. And so um, what was, what was lucky about our original production is that we were in a very, very intimate space. I mean, it was like the size of a large living room in somebody's home. So luckily we could trust that, yeah, that would work. What was challenging is that when it transferred to a larger space, maybe almost three times the size of our initial space, was how much do we amplify what we're doing so that it is legible to an audience. And that's hard to do. was hard to do as an actor. You... To read that kind of room, you really have to trust the feedback that's coming from the audience and coming from your director and obviously your playwright and saying like and just trusting that it's enough, you know, and it is enough.
1: I I wanted to. uh, This is probably not a question that you can um, um, answer, Brad, but I'm sure you were in rehearsal best. Did you find that all the actors were sometimes in different plays in terms of gesture at in early on in the rehearsal process? Yeah, I mean, that, that,
3: I think that always kind of comes up in rehearsal, mm-hmm. whether the play's silent or not. Like, how do we all make sure that we're like performing in the same language and at the same level? And, and definitely with this one, I think it did. But it, it really, we kept coming back to this idea that Brad is, articulating, which is, you know, just have the experience and let the audience come to you. Don't like push it out to the audience. You know, to me, so much of the play was about like teaching the audience how to watch very closely from the beginning. I Mm -hmm. don't know if you had this experience while you were directing it, but it's like, you have to really teach them how to come to the play. And if you can do that in the first few minutes, then they'll pick up on all of the small um, nuances and they won't expect to be sort of like fed the play. And, you know, to me, so much of it, it was like getting people to sit up and pay attention, which is kind of also what the play about. Like, can you be alive to the world around you? Can you pay attention? Can you wake up? Like, I think that there's part of that that we were trying to do to the audience and the way we performed it.
1: Wow, that is a note I would have loved to have had <laughs> in <laughs> rehearsal, <laughs> because that was like something I was teetering with. Um, uh, what I had to do with some of my actors was I had to take certain gestures off the table mm, because we had some very, very experienced uh, actors. Some of them were like circ performers and they could be a little more amplified. Uh, And then we had other actors who had certain like repeatable gestures that had nothing to do with with what was happening. It was just coming out of nervousness. Mm -hmm. I had to take those gestures off the table uh, in order um, so that they would just kind of be more grounded in connecting and telling that story and really paying close attention to your stage directions, which I think are actually, uh, really well written and very clear. And that was another thing that I, um, was afraid of too, when I was working on it, I was like, well, how far beyond these stage directions do I go? Like, where are the boundaries Uh, And if I go too far beyond the stage directions, then does it just become like an inside story that the actors are that we've created that has nothing to do uh, with the story that you've created, um, which was also a concern of mine. But even when you have verbal text, right, actors put their own spin on the play in order to make it their own unique experience. So those were some of the things that I was trying to balance. And it it was a it was a very scary (laughs) process for me. Uh, I to be quite honest, like I was directing this by myself. Sometimes Joe and I co-direct, but I was coming home a lot and, and crying, going, I don't know if I know what I'm doing. Oh no. <laughs> it, was, it was, it was, it was scary. And then, you know, Joe came in later on in the process and, and like he always does, you know, we look at each other's work and, you know, we just kept refining and refining and refining until we got to opening night. And by the time we got into production, I was very, very proud of it. And I was very proud of the team and the design and all of the things that were involved. But just like when you're working on any show, you know, it is that experience that you have to go to where you're kind of standing, you know, out there at the edge of the cliff and going, is this going to work? I'm kind of free falling here. But Anne-Marie,
2: that is that is very much the story of the play.
1: <laughs> yes. You know, you, your
2: experience mirrors the the literal journey of every character in the play. Everybody's walking you know in the dark in the woods and finally arrives you know at this moment of imagining uh, bears
1: i think i would rather be (laughs) not ned because he has a shit storm of a story (laughs) well that's something we can say too i don't know
0: if i if i pointed this out is the bread you played ned in the in the production ned is the character who has had a horrible rock climbing accident and actually has a a three-page monologue in the middle of this very quiet play a monologue that that was under some scrutiny best didn't you have a a couple of shows where you actually cut the monologue
3: not during a performance we did one uh rehearsal run where we tried lifting it out because i um i wasn't sure I, i just kept Try, I was trying to understand like how to go that far into speech and then come back out of it and just making sure that I wasn't like disrupting the energy of the play too much but um so we tried it once without the monologue and then everybody yelled at me for even wanting to try that <laughs> and the monologue went back in.
2: It was like It was, like was a such a dark, me. sad day
1: It was an awful
0: day yes. Yes.
2: <laughs> It was an awful day. Uh, but what I do remember you, you saying is like, because, you know, Best was, uh, the play was still growing and developing through our rehearsal process. And and I remember you saying like, it helped you look at the scene following that that question and answer scene. And you wound up kind of tweaking and rewriting the, I don't know, it was mm-hmm. a scene where we were I can't remember what the scene, but we're like on yoga mats with the teacher the next day. I can't, I don't know what scene that is. Isn't that the scene with
1: Judy gets, uh, the, the, the note gets revealed. That's That's right. And
0: Alicia, Alicia has a breakdown. And his cell phone, it's his cell phone moment. It's the teacher's cell phone moment.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: That's right. That's right. And I remember you reworked that and I don't know, it was in response to taking the, the question and answer out that one day that. You could see that scene clearer. that's my memory anyway,
3: yeah, because my experience had been like because I wasn't sure about the Ned monologue during the the subsequent scene, every time that the scene came up right after the Ned monologue, I spent the first like five minutes of it wondering about whether I should cut the Ned monologue, so I wasn't <laughs> like really watching it ever, <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> once I tried cutting the, like I had to resolve the Ned mauling and then I could like see the next thing, you know, um, I tend to get obsessive about certain chunks of plays and sometimes so much that I'm like not looking at the rest of it. So, well, I was
0: curious about that story because of all, of all the themes in the, in the play, the themes of, of loneliness and, and striving to better yourself and, and being unhappy. And is it possible to make yourself happy? And all of those themes, um, the Ned monologue, as it's come to be called, uh, Just strikes me as really laying the foundation for the theme of um, climate change Mm. and the notion of sort of global the sense that that some of us carry with us day to day of global doom, which I think is a pretty heavy foundational
1: um, um, concept in the play. And they're not and there are hardly any plays about climate change. Yeah, yeah, no, it's wow. true. It's true. I know I did. I tried, I wrote another
3: play about climate change right after this. So climate change was like very much on my mind and uh, definitely um, uh, it sort of snuck its way into this play. You know, I didn't intend for it to be such a big part of this play. But I think also because The natural world is such a part of their environment, whether it's like the lake or the the woods that they're in and the sounds of that natural world. Um, The idea of like humans in nature and how we interact feels very present in the play throughout. Um,
1: There's uh, uh, a person in our community who I respect uh, quite a bit. His name is uh, Daz Weller. He's another um, artistic director. And he was so impressed with uh that section of the play and and he commented to me after the show about how you had you found a way to to get the idea of climate change in there and um and so bravo
3: thank you thank i wish i could take credit for it but uh somebody at a retreat that i went to got up and asked a similar question to that and it like spiraled through the person's life and ended up into climate change and it just felt so um arresting to me to see that and so um that was uh, i can't take full credit because it happened in life
0: but is it this is one of the three people that inspires you in, no, in your no. work? it wasn't
3: brad, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't brad but it, it could have been it was brad's alter egos somewhere. brad's doppelganger
0: We love talking about theater and all of the analysis that that has to be a part of any artistic expression. We're planning on continuing with further seasons of Behind the Buzz, but we need your input, right? Absolutely. Yes. Is there a, a production you want to talk about, a reading that you think demands a deeper dive? Drop us an email at... Behind the buzz at apublicfit.org. Is there a particular show you'd like to hear discussed? Is there a, an element of production that you've always been curious about? Is there a question you always wanted to ask Anne Marie? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's your chance. Is there a chance that you want to say hello to Enzo? Well, here's your chance. So stay tuned for further episodes or hit the subscribe button to be sure of being updated with all of our current content. Yeah, I, I wrote down uh, on, my, on my list of notes here, I wrote down just a quick question to myself, who's the, the protagonist of the play? And then I immediately thought to myself, well, is that, an, is that an antiquated question anymore? Do we need protagonists, per se, to tell the stories that, that we want to tell? What do you think of that as a, as a playwright? Do you consider um, the idea that, that maybe we don't always need a single protagonist to drive a story along?
3: I think that's an interesting question. I I think this play really is an ensemble play. Um, so I don't see it as one protagonist. Um, and I, I really, I tried very hard to balance the characters so that no one felt like they were running away with the story. Um, and so um, I think... I think it just depends on the way the play is structured. I think you can have one protagonist still. I don't think it's antiquated, but I think, um, you know, to me, what was interesting in this was creating a real ensemble where everyone has their moment of crisis. Everyone has their moment of revelation, everyone has their reason for being there, even if it's not fully articulated and to sort of balance it without making it feel too expected in terms of how things were balanced. Like I had written one draft of this where everybody got their question, you know, and it wasn't just Ned getting his question. And that felt kind of like, uh, annoying to me because then I'm suddenly like waiting to hear everybody ask their question and I'm as an audience member like ticking off in my mind how many people have spoken and you know, like, how many do I have left to go it's and like looking all, uh, look at, the, look
0: at the songs list during Pirates of Penza, right, It's like exactly. what is Pirates of over? Oh, no they have to sing another general song <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> exactly we've all been there um, so I, I you know I, I wanted to sort of create a feeling of balance without sort of making everyone go through the same motions in a way that would start to feel predictable I guess so so, it, Brett, so when, when
0: the show was out on did a national tour you actually had to step in to a role uh, in, in another city right in Philadelphia or somewhere yeah
2: yeah it was amazing what, um, what was that
0: process like
2: it was it, it, it was really cool it was like um, I'd never done anything like that I I worked as an understudy before which is kind of um which is its own you know experience and kind of Worms, but because it was a play that I had done with another group of people uh, like a year prior, I had this whole other um, experience in life still kind of like, you know, in my body. So so walking into a cast where I only had two days of rehearsal and, you know, one put in on stage, it was fascinating because um, I had to be alive to what they were offering and serving up in the moment, which was so different. Uh, Well, it wasn't so different, but it just had different little peaks and valleys than what we had found as a non-ensemble, you know, in the original production, of course, that's a given. So it was kind of challenging and fun and, um, you know, it, it kept me on my toes, but I love that because like, as an actor, one of the things at least I've arrived at or I'm most interested in is like, what is, you know, like what is actually happening on stage, like that, that, that a moment is alive, you know, that we're not, we're not showing something that we've rehearsed. We've rehearsed so that we can be alive in the moment and present to what's actually happening. And so that experience kind of, um, you know, illuminated that for me because I had to be present to what they were giving me. I couldn't rely on old patterns and rhythms that, Um, were established in the other production and
0: nor would I want to, but uh, that, that made it really fun. And they had, you, they had you play Galicia, too, which I thought was a strange... Yeah. Without, and you know what? I was sexy. <laughs> I was sexy. I was. I really, I really brought... <laughs> God, thanks for going with that. That's, that's good. So I want to ask you best. So actors have done this. You know, Well, uh, what's his name? Anglum. Philip Anglum made a pretty good career just going in around the country doing Elephant Man's around the, the world after his his Broadway debut of Elephant Man. So production after production after production. But playwrights don't often come back to their work... It, it's done. Other productions are you know, produced around the world, but they don't always go back in uh, and, and tinker with them. Did they bring you back to uh, the when you revamped for the signature production? Were you involved in that transition?
3: Yeah, I was. I was. And, uh, you know, that really was a, a transfer. You know, we were trying to sort of keep the magic that we had found in our first production. So there wasn't a lot of. Um, sort of deep rethinking of what the show was. In fact, a lot of the conversation was how do we preserve this feeling that we had in a larger space? But um, the one thing that I did update a little bit was actually Ned's monologue, because the world had moved forward and climate change had become more dire, unfortunately, and the the challenges that we're facing as a society had become more extreme in the year since we had done the show the first time. So, um, I felt like to keep it current, I had to kind of, uh, incorporate, um, those changes in the world. And I, I wanted that to feel really contemporary.
0: Could we, um, it's all about Brad. It always comes back to Brad I know. and his monologue. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> I
3: know.
0: We had in, in our production. We had a, we laid a pretty heavy hand on what we sort of considered this meta moment, where the teacher uh, gives his "You are not alone" speech. And uh, in our production, it seemed like there was not. I mean, we staged it in a tennis court setting, much as the original production did. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, but we brought the house lights up, and uh, it was. It was one of my favorite moments in in our production, because when the audience is facing each other and then the teachers giving this particular mantra, right, uh, it encouraged people who felt comfortable with that to kind of accept that idea. And I could see who felt comfortable with it and I could see who didn't. It was like, oh, it was like a psychological study to see who was really uh, embracing that because... um uh, Joe and I, we watch every one of our productions just because, you know, we have to be the producers and the the usher. And I also have to clean the bathroom and do all of these things in my theater. <laughs> so uh, but that that was one of uh, my favorite moments in the show, just because of that interchange uh, between the audience and. Uh, and the story itself
0: well and that was the reason i brought it up was because it wasn't in tennis court and when we brought the lights up you know the audience was forced to literally look across the stage at themselves and hear this speech about you know you are you are not alone you are not alone and i brought it up that's because i wondered if you got any feedback from audiences about the very nature of self-help seminars and, and silent retreats and what have you and from either side because i think From my perspective, there's a real danger in, especially with the way the teacher can be presented, in mocking that process as opposed to accepting it as a a very valuable uh, uh, process to go through. So I wonder what your perspective was on that and if you got any feedback from audiences on either side of that spectrum.
3: Yeah, well, um, yeah, that's one of my favorite moments in the play, too. I do think it's kind of the moment where the audience become part of the retreat, you know, um, and, uh, it kind of creeps up on you. And, and interestingly, that moment evolved because I didn't expect that moment, but, um, the way the theater was set up at Ars Nova, um, where we first did the show, it took the actors a very long time to cross over from one side of the stage to the other. They had to like go downstairs through the basement and walk back up. So we were trying to get them to cross over and re-enter and they they couldn't get there in time. So there was this, ta- this moment when the stage was bare and the teacher was speaking and nobody was there and it was just the audience. And, um, you know, everyone was like, this is terrible. We've got to solve this. And what we came to was like, no, this is actually like, an incredibly powerful moment where the audience becomes part of the retreat. And I was like running to the director, like, I love it, leave it, leave it. Like this is, (laughs) this is the play, you know? So it was really exciting discovery that didn't happen until tech. And, um, you know, I think you're exactly right. Like the play walks this line of, um, are we satirizing this or are we taking it seriously? And I, as a playwright, I'm always kind of like trying to, have my cake and eat it too. You know, I think of it as like a sort of compassionate satire, you know, that it's, that it's, um, that it's, um, having fun with a situation that has inherent humor, but it's not mocking these people, you know, that's like the line that I'm trying to walk all the time. And I, I think it's very important that even though the teacher is slightly ridiculous at moments, that the teachings of the teacher are also, um, uh, taken seriously at moments and do feel like they have real worth and that we are invested in um, him or her or them, um, uh, whoever the teacher may be. Um, because if we don't buy anything the teacher's saying, it's like impossible to get on the journey with the characters. So mm-hmm. um, I think that um, that's a really important piece of of doing this play. And the, the most sort of... Um, uh, fulfilling thing for me in terms of the audience was when people who are from the Um, meditation community, the spiritual community, people who um, really knew that world intimately came and felt seen by the play and loved the play. Mm. And um, Mm. one of um, the sort of most famous meditation teachers in the world is this um, woman named Sharon Salzberg, who um, came to the play a bunch of times and did a talk back afterwards and said to me after she saw the play, like, this is the play that I would have written if I could write a play about my experiences as a meditation teacher, um, and then we became great friends. Actually, after the after the play closed, so wow. that was really nice.
1: Love that. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: you brought up talkbacks. What's as a playwright? What are your feelings about talkbacks? I know that uh, some of your I don't I, your peers. Do we call... Uh, <laughs> oh,
1: you mean David Manning? Don't call Bennett? David do call Manif- Manif- <laughs> yeah, Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, so, okay, so I said it. <laughs> some <laughs> of the folks who
0: are in your particular line of work don't care for callbacks, in fact, or talkbacks. Uh, right. Callbacks. Don't care for talkbacks. And in fact, we'll ban them from, from their productions. <laughs> I just have to tell you, you may not be aware, but Public Fit, uh, we do something called The Buzz. And we do... Our buzz is a talkback. After every performance, not just on the Sunday matinees, we do it at opening night, we do it at closing night, we do it at every one of our performances, all of our readings and and nearly everything we do because we really believe that the conversation between the audience uh, and the actors is not just um, relegated to the confines of the play itself. I've put that thought in your mind, but what's what do you have an opinion about talkbacks as a general rule? How do you feel about them as a playwright?
3: Um, they're very nerve wracking as a playwright. Um, just, you know, I don't know that I have sort of a grand opinion about whether they should happen or not, but my experience of them is, um, that I'm always terrified. Um, and, um, you sort of feel like, um, you're going to be humiliated. (laughs) Um, and sometimes you are, um, but, um, that's okay too when that happens I mean I feel like that you know we make this work and you know we get a certain amount of hopefully positive feedback about it and then like the price of that is a certain amount of humiliation too so that um, is
1: exactly how I feel Uh, but we've been doing it for so long now for the first couple years I was like I hate this and then Joe would throw out a question to me and I wouldn't know the answer and I would be mortified but now I've kind of I sit in this place now where it's an opportunity for us to really learn about what the audience thinks about the the play. And something unique that we do is we never really focus in on like the acting choices.
0: Or the playwriting choices, really. I mean, we we want to talk about the production, the, the production, the play as written and mm-hmm. as presented and and how it lands on people as opposed to making any sort of qualitative. Uh,
1: Criticism criticisms. Criticisms. Yeah. yeah. So. It's, we- huh?
0: That's what I was going
2: to say is like a, for me, a talkback needs a fantastic moderator that understands like, you know, that has a really certain, you know, purpose, uh, you know, and with, you know, good questions and things like that. When it's just like, so, you know, and it's open-ended.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, that's, that's
2: what's terrible about talkbacks. Other than that, if you can facilitate an interesting question about like the themes that I brought up or, you know, and not about like. You know, what Climate did you like? Change. I
0: like the I like the set, you know. How'd <laughs> well, you learn so <laughs> many lines? How'd you learn all those lines? <laughs> the reason I ask you specifically about that best though is because your first play is literally a talk back. <laughs> Is that not, is that not true?
3: Yes, that is true. So you can can tell my feelings about talkbacks. Can you,
0: can you describe, we've, we've mentioned at the top of this podcast about cats talk back. Can you describe cats talk back uh, for our listeners who I'm sure have not seen it?
3: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, um, cats talk back was something I came up with in grad school when we were being subjected to many, many (laughs) talkbacks after every grad school performance, there's always talkback and I was interested in actually the form of the talkback you know the sense of like uh, everybody trying to say something smart and the sort of performance of the the way the performance of a play sort of continues into the talkback was interesting to me so I wrote a play that was a talkback a sort of fictional talkback after a performance of Cats the (laughs) musical and the conceit of the play was that five people who had been in Cats were coming to talk actually to the Yale School of drama, which is where we did the play, about their process and share, you know, tales from Broadway and stuff about working with Andrew Lloyd Webber and sort of, um, you know, create a bridge between the Yale Drama School and the Great White Way. As <laughs> um, and then, you know, and, and we really promoted it like it was real. And actually, um, different um, like high schools in the New Haven area signed up to come, (laughs) thinking it was real, um, for their students to learn about Broadway. So it kind of got out of control, and then we did it again in New York in the Fringe Festival, and continued this um, like sort of mock talkback thing. And and it was really fun. And then we had plants in the audience asking questions of the (laughs) actors.
0: What's what sort of research did you do for such a project? Did you talk to any actors? I'm flabbergasted actually how many actors I know who have been in cats. Out here in Las Vegas, we run into a Cirque performer now and again who, you know, was a Mr. Mistopheles or somewhere. Yeah. Um, Did what sort of research was involved?
3: Well, I actually did talk to a bunch of people who had been in Cats for um, long periods of time. Um, you can you can dig up interviews to you know with people who've been in Cats. So I read a bunch of interviews and um, looked at sort of what the experience had been. And then we, there was a costume design student at Yale who had been in Cats for a long time, and uh, before he transitioned into being a costume designer. So I talked to him um, and just sort of did did my research on. And then I knew the show very well because I was in a, like a bootleg production of cats at my church when I was about 12, <laughs> where we made our cat costumes out of long underwear with yarn, um, or our moms made them for us really. And, um, that and so I kind of had the whole show at my fingertips <laughs> from that experience. Um, so I don't know, but I really didn't, I, I was much less, uh, it's funny. The idea that came to me first was let's do a show that it's a talkback and then I thought okay well what's a show where like I don't need to explain the plot and everyone will kind of know it okay let's just make it Cats but you know I had thought about should it be Death of the Salesman should it be like what should it be oh the um,
0: Cats is perfect
3: Cats was good yeah no I, yeah we landed on the right thing I think at
0: the end oh I think so too god it, it's just perfect well it, it, it does seem that you have a, a bias against talkbacks but I that's okay I, I guess
3: it's good I think a great. I will say, like there's there have been moments in talkbacks um that audience members have said things to me that have been so incredibly moving to me and have really stayed with me, you know, uh, in just like absolutely beautiful ways. There was a talkback that we had after make-believe, which was another show that Brad was in. Um, and, uh, there was one audience member who just had clearly been so affected by the play and the way he spoke about it was something that, you know, I'll never forget. So I really, I, I don't have total disdain for talkbacks. I think that they can just, you know, be, be very beautiful moments of connection between the artists and the, and the audience.
0: Well, I'll tell you, we, we, we take ours very seriously in having the conversation about the event, right? The, the sort of the effect of, of the show. And one of the things, it's one of the reasons Emery and I see all the shows, I moderate those, those discussions and uh, without fail at every, uh, buzz following small mouth sounds, there were at least half a dozen people that had gone to some sort of self-help seminar, some sort of silent retreat, some sort of meditation, um, getaway or, or a yoga, uh, extended yoga seminar, uh, and really felt that, uh, that your play captured perfectly, not just the experience, but the ludicrousness in concert with the sort of deep, um, uh, honest, you know, uh, meaningful experience that they had that those two extremes um, lived in in that experience for them. So uh, for me, who's never been to one, I was just surprised, I was surprised at how many people had had gone through that.
3: Yeah, that's great. Well, that's a testament to your production, too, because so much of the tone of the play lives in the production of like walking that line before between profundity and Ridiculous. <laughs> i had a
1: lot of help from brad <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> calling, sure. oh my god <laughs> help yeah.
0: what, what what was the biggest question you had for brad do you remember uh
1: well i remember i don't remember i remember having a hard time with the the cabin sequence i think oh, i spent really? like 30 hours on that sequence Wow. He's um, at night,
2: like night one when everybody's unpacking. Oh and my
1: God. It was. Yeah. Uh, yeah we did, but
2: we did too. You know, we, we spent so many, that, that, that is the most difficult sequence because there's so much storytelling happening. And there's also much like what Bess said earlier, teaching the audience how to listen to the play and how to watch the play. And it's happening in that, that first night.
1: And Joe and I kind of pride ourselves at being really good at transitions, you know. Like I feel, you know, directors they 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 move furniture and and move bodies and things like that.
0: We have a strict no blackout policy. <laughs>
1: yeah, and uh, I was I had a hard time with some of the transitions in, in, in the show. So uh, I remember calling Brad about a, a couple of those things, but also just. Um, Just trusting in in the simplicity of the storytelling was just something I I I had a hard time with. So it's funny in the previous uh, conversation that we had with Maggie Edson, we asked her about a particular moment. I was like, oh, my God, we missed, missed, missed. (laughs) We missed that moment. So that opening comment that you made earlier about getting the audience just to trust, uh, I. I, that is something that I think would have given me some more peace of p- mind. And I, I've, I felt like I finally got there, but it's not something that I consciously c- could talk about, you know, in the rehearsal process. So, um, so
0: I need an audience too, to sort of help you take that step as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think an audience
0: helps there mm-hmm. and we don't do a lot of previews.
1: Uh-uh, no. Uh, I'm yeah. sorry, Bess, I cut you off.
3: No, no, no. I think it's totally right. The audience sort of teaches you. I mean, we with this play, we did workshops and, you know, I didn't know when we first started doing this play. Like, are people going to be bored? Are they going to fall asleep? Are they going to walk out? Are they going to like no idea what the reaction would mm-hmm. be? No idea. Um and, um, it was through doing workshops and getting feedback. Like you should keep going with this. This is interesting. People are sitting up and paying attention. Um, that I was like, okay, uh, you know, but I, I didn't, I didn't know. I, I just, I empathize with what you're saying about that sense of terror. Cause that is what I had going into it. Like this is going to be just like the most boring thing. And, you know, no, one's going to want to watch the, watch this. And, um, I, I think I learned in a way that um sometimes the less you give an audience the more interested they are you know mm-hmm. um that you kind of hold back things from them and it makes them sit up and want more as opposed yeah. to sort of shoving a lot of things in their face and that was, that was a big lesson for me
1: for I t- me I, I teach that to my students all the time mystery 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 yeah but then I don't necessarily I'm like am I creating mystery in my own shows so
0: do you, yeah. do you do you like I'm gonna I'm going to change yeah, just gears absolutely. for a little bit. Do you, you mentioned the workshopping process best. Do you enjoy that process? Is it um, uh, it's certainly where it's worthwhile because it makes a piece grow. But do you is it fun to take those notes and to get that feedback into maybe, you know, what's the cliche murder, <coughs> murder your darlings and, and lose some of your favorite moments in a play? Do you enjoy that process?
3: Um Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't love murdering my darlings, that part of it. Um, although I am a a person who loves to cut things as you can tell from the story (laughs) about cutting Brad's monologue. So I'm normally like the one out there with the ax trying to murder everything myself and other people have to kind of like stop me from doing it. Um, so I I do. It's been interesting, actually, during COVID because, you know, I'm writing plays, but the workshop piece of it is gone, you know, mm-hmm. since we can't gather and workshopping on Zoom is so different. So I'm having this experience of writing drafts of plays without having workshopped them. Just I'm just sort of like in my own, you know bubble of of working on things without feedback from actors or without seeing it on its feet and um, i don't know what you know it's just a very different process for me and i don't know how it'll go or what it'll lead to um yeah
0: that's funny because i was going to ask you about because you're right you're right do some writing for television and i imagine yeah. a screen a screenplay or two hidden yeah. there somewhere um and you certainly don't workshop tv episodes right the process of writing for tv comes without workshopping but now you're having to do that for a theater which do you prefer do you prefer the the uh, the structure and the process of th- writing for theater for plays or do you like the the small screen writing more
3: i really like writing for plays i really do i have to say i love like the flexibility of the of the theater it's funny you would think like um TV and film would offer you more flexibility because of editing and all the different locations you can have. But I just Sma- find, smashing
0: a truck through a wall,
3: right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that's no big deal on film. Um, but I just really I love the the I don't know the fluidity of theater. I just I love being in a room with people, and I love I love that process, and I I miss it a lot. Um, so I What's, there's no contest for me.
0: Are we going to get back to it? What's the future? Oh my gosh. for theater. Do we have any idea? What What are they saying out there in New York kids? What's the theater, the future of theater like?
3: Um, I don't know. They keep, they keep giving us dates that everything will come back by. And then they keep sort of pushing the dates and pushing the dates and pushing the dates. Um, you know, and, and I, I have, things in the works where they've said like we may start rehearsals in april we may start rehearsals in july you know they give you several sets of dates um and you know everyone's just doing the best they can and hoping that things come back but i I really don't think anybody knows how we'll come back or or what the appetite will be for um audiences you know are people going to be comfortable gathering and what will make them comfortable gathering again and I don't know. I think it's it's just a huge, huge question mark still.
0: But you've been able to write. You, you've kept yourself busy.
3: Yeah, I have. I, I sort of feel like um, the, the theater community is uniquely suited to weather this because we have so much uncertainty in our lives anyway, you know, and um, we're so used to things coming together and falling apart that um, it's (laughs) like, oh, that didn't work out. Okay. Like, you know, we're we're sort of like more battle scarred, I think, in terms of just not knowing what's going to happen next. I I feel kind of comfortable not knowing what's going to happen next in a way that I think, you know, if you've had a more sort of like Traditional career trajectory, you might not, but um, yeah, I, I'm still writing plays. I I, I really believe that theater is coming back, and I think people are going to be really excited to gather again. And I I think it's going to be really meaningful to people when it happens. So, um, oh, I, I agree. I, I think
0: those first few performances are going to be remarkable just for yeah. their their sense of reunion. I what about know. you, Brad? You, you you're obviously not working. There's no no acting jobs. No, not working, Joe. <laughs> I don't need to throw you under the unemployment bus, but are you? you been, because you are a working actor. You are you are a working New York actor. What successful. are you doing? A successful working New York yeah. actor That's right. um, in every play Best Walls Ever Written. I understand. Um, no. How are you spending your time these days? Uh, well, Joe,
2: I have, I, you know, it's it's funny you should ask. Um, <laughs> trying to be funny, Brad.
1: No, Brad's funny. Oh, he is. Yes. No,
2: but I think part of me, like what Beth was talking about, like um, you know, being in a room with people and being that kind that kind of engagement. It's like I still have that need, but of course, I don't know where to put it, and so I've been taking courses at a college and trying to stay engaged, like. Um, in an, you know, with my mind and my, my body in a new way. And so I'm just like trying to learn and continue to uh, challenge myself and, um, you know, use my time that I have, but still feel, um, like I'm, you know, growing and learning and working towards something, even though I don't have a, you know, a solid idea of, you know exactly where I'm headed it, but I don't think it really matters I don't think I have to answer that question I, I think um it's been beneficial and what I what I do know is that I'm I'm happy I'm doing that right now so, you guys are nice. so
0: noble. I've been napping and eating frozen burritos. So I've done,
2: look, I've done that too. Yeah. <laughs> just that
1: too. I've been exercising. Yes. I am. I'm exercising.
0: exercises nonstop. <laughs> nonstop. Well, I, I think I've taken up enough of your time with all this. Thank you so much for doing this. For having the conversation with us, we loved uh, Small Mouth Sounds. Not just the Ars Nova production, but our our own work. And uh, it, it's one of my favorite shows that we've done.
1: It's uh, amongst our like administrative staff. It's the favorite. Oh, it is it that's is. amazing absolutely thank in the
0: top you. three thank and you I'm
3: so bummed that I didn't see it I'm sure it was amazing well
0: thanks again really for taking the time to to have this conversation with us and hopefully we could do something like this again I'd love to chat with you more as we come back online and and, and hear what uh, other plays you have in the pipeline Bess. I'm really curious to see what comes next what, what the next impossible feat
1: yeah we might put it in our season oh I <laughs> oh,
0: would love to yeah that'd be great <laughs> cool. cool.
1: and Brad thank hopefully
0: you. we'll see you soon yeah yeah, I would love that. Okay. <laughs> right. I'll, see you at a- I'll see you at 8 p.m. <laughs> Thanks, guys.
3: Thank you so much.
0: So that wraps up season one of Behind the Buzz, our continuing conversation from a public theater company. This was episode seven. And I want to again thank brad Heberly and Bess wall for joining us today with their small mouth sounds tales and and their unique perspective on the state of the yard it was a a complicated journey for us getting here to this last episode the holidays the pandemic some personal issues but we're so happy that you've joined our extended conversation special thanks finally to the staff of a public fit for their unwavering patience and support as we explore this brand new medium lisa lynn chapman brandy blackman david adler Tina Rice, Andrew Calvert, Gabby Giacomo, and Ace Daniels. We literally could do nothing without your continued dedication and love. Behind the Buzz is a product of a public theater company in association with Giant Leap Industries, Adam Paul, director.
1: of Giant Leap Industries.